This is a second Q&A episode. We opened it up to the crew's friends and family to see if there was anything they wanted to know. And there were some crew-specific questions which were answered on a previous episode. And there were some more general questions that Barry and I, as land crew and experienced ocean rowers, can answer. Hold on, Alex, let me just Google that because I reckon there's probably a thing. How long... So, Barry, we may as well kick it off with the first question, and that is, we wondered what your role, Barry and Alex, was going to be on a daily basis. And will you be working shifts to cover a 24-hour period, or will you just be logging in intermittently? Do you want to tell everybody who we are and why we are able to answer these questions? Okay, yes. uh, I'm Barry. I um, have rowed a couple of oceans uh, with Billy in the past, um, so have some knowledge of what what they're doing, um, but I've never rowed across the Atlantic, but uh, we're in a good position to be able to, to support them as best as we can. I have rowed across the Atlantic with Billy and all three of us uh, are the founders of Monkey Fist Adventures. So we all have experience with ocean rowing. And it's a case of when you're rowing an ocean, you need a lot of backup and land support. So you need a, a link between the boat and the land. And that's what Barry and I are going to be providing. On a daily basis, we'll be speaking to the crew making sure everything is okay for them if they need any help, if they need any support. And we will also link back to their friends and family and people at home, including sponsors and everybody who is involved in the row and making sure that they're up to date on how the crew are getting on as well. Yeah, and from a from a twenty four hour period uh, thing, I'm I'm doing the day twelve hours, and Alex is doing the night twelve hours. Um, that's that's how it's working, isn't it? <laughs> that is not true. <laughs> Are you telling me you're not monitoring them at night, Alex? Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, but we are we are available 24 hours a day. Um, you know, we have had, had experience before in in sort of organising rescues and things like that. And and you just have to it just have to have your phone on loud for 24 hours a day. So you might get a phone call at three o'clock in the morning and just need to deal with it. Uh, but there isn't really any need for us both to be taking shifts to watch the little dot for 24 hours a day. You've just got to be ready to spring into action uh, when we're needed. Yeah, my phone on do not disturb at night so Harry will be will be dealing with the night calls maybe I shouldn't have told him that (laughs) second question is what sort of updates can we expect once the guys have set off and how are they going to manage to stay in touch I think that we've had some brilliant updates from the guys. Most of the ocean rowing events that you see will have uh, nothing coming back or very little coming back just because they haven't got the energy or the technology in order to do it. The boat that the guys are out on is is the most advanced boat technologically as far as comms is concerned in the world by quite a long stretch. And what that does is it makes it, it's not just about sending the information back most crews can do that. It's about making it easy for people to do it because when you've when you're rowing for 12 hours of the day and you're only getting 90 minutes tops sleep per day, you're exhausted and you just want to get in your cabin. And if you can send stuff, if you can line your back in the cabin and just send the video, then it means that you get an enormous amount of stuff back rather than having to clamber out onto the deck, stop everyone rowing, trying to aim a little satellite up into the sky to get the satellites to finally send something on your phone, to then lose that satellite connection and having to do it all over again. So by making it simpler, we actually get some really, really great stuff back. And I think on this one, particularly with uh, Mr. Pritchard, um, there's no 
shortage of energy uh, for, for, for the people sending stuff back. So I think we've been able to get some really, really good updates back for the families and for social media. Yeah. And that kind of links in with our other question as well, which is, can they use their mobile phones while they're on board? And I think as someone that's had experience of this, when we first set off from uh, Lanzarote back in 2020, we were using a laptop to communicate and it was really difficult. You didn't want to log on to the laptop. It was quite cumbersome. It was difficult to type on because you can't, you can't lie down and type on a laptop. You have to be sat up. When we stopped in Cape Verde and we made a change to the way we communicate, we were able to install a app on our phones, which makes it just like instant messaging. So it's an app which is very similar to WhatsApp, but it works slightly differently. And you can also compress videos and images so they're quite small, making them easier to send back. It is a weird experience. You're lying in the cabin on your mobile phone, texting somebody back on land. And when they're available, you get a reply instantly, just like you would at home. And it it kind of takes a while to get your head around the fact that you're in the middle of the ocean, but you're just texting on your phone. Very strange, but also very, very handy. Like Barry said, it makes it so easy to send stuff back. And yeah, we we are getting so much good stuff back from them. And we're, we're putting it up on our Instagram and our Facebook pages every day, really, which is brilliant. What's harder to make progress in when you're rowing an ocean, rough seas or calm, flat water? What do you think? Certainly the fastest conditions you can be in is, is rough seas, but it's very much about the direction of the sea rather than the, than the sort of speed of the sea. If, you know, rough seas can be completely the opposite direction. I remember an instance on the Indian Ocean where we rode for the best part of 10 days and we were backwards from where we were 10 days ago and we rode the whole time, uh, which is pretty soul destroying. Um, so that, that's always tough, but then you get, uh, so, so you sort of always think, oh, it would be better with the karma seas and the karma seas are lovely. You can just enjoy the, the sunshine hopefully, and just uh, row as you row. But it's you can only get, really hope to get between, you know, three and four knots um, on, on calm seas. When the seas are rough in the right direction, the boat gets picked up. Um, and if you pull on the oars at the right time, you end up surfing down these waves. The fastest speed that we surfed down a wave, which is actually the fastest speed I've seen anyone ever surf down a wave, which was recorded on our, our computers, was uh, on the, that was on the Indian, was 23 point one knots, which was crazy. It was really crazy. Yeah, if you if you can catch a wave, you surf down it for a few seconds, and it's a pretty cool feeling. But also comes with the hazard of falling in, so that's not as good. <laughs> and getting wet, getting wet is a bit of a pain. But surfing waves is really fun. I think we topped about fourteen and a half knots or something on the Atlantic. So I win. I win then. Yeah, you win. <laughs> you win. But. <laughs> But honestly, 14 and a half was enough for me. It felt really fast. And there was a lot of white water around the sides of the boat. So it gave this really weird, trippy kind of feeling. You know, when you see on TV and stuff and they have these like big lines that go really fast and it's like you're traveling through time. All the white water kind of gave that effect. And it was like you were going through some kind of portal. It was really weird. But also it did rip me out of my seat. So that wasn't too fun either. So yeah, rough seas and calm. There are benefits to both. I think aren't there but in terms of speed a lot of it depends on what's going on underneath the water rather than on top so it's all about the current and stuff like that I think you can make progress in both yeah and if, if you're in calm seas as Alex said there's currents so, you, so the currents sort of swirl around and if you're in a negative current as in sending you the wrong way it just feels suddenly like you're in treacle it literally feels like you're rowing in treacle it's a strange experience but uh, it's always nice when it's uh, sending you the right way 
Someone wants to know what sort of speeds they are hoping to average. They're currently averaging sort of 2.8, 2.9 knots, which is which is pretty good, actually. In fact, it's very good. They're doing really well. Um, the sort of boat that they're in, that's that's quite a quick speed. And, and they haven't had really rough weather sort of so they can surf or anything like that. Uh, they've just been powering on the oars as far as I can tell. What's the worst case scenario for the weather when you're rowing across the Atlantic? Hurricane. Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it is. And that's always an issue. That's an ever-present issue. And there's a hurricane season where most of them happen, but they can happen at any time. The first ocean that I rode was in the very first race across the Pacific Ocean. And the trailing people in that race uh, got caught up in, in two hurricanes that came through. Wasn't expected, but they, they can happen at, at any stage. There's just a general season. So there are times where, you know, people will experience the absolute worst of weathers and, and generally hurricanes are that. And there are plenty of crossings which are just smooth and worry-free. But yeah, I'd say I'd say hurricanes is, is what you don't want to see on, on the weather map. I think the guys, especially um, Matt and Johnny, are, are pretty keen on some bad weather. And I think they were expecting the weather to be pretty gnarly. And I think they've maybe been a little bit disappointed that it's been pretty calm and flat. When I rode, I didn't really consider that there would be a hurricane, but I really wanted to see a storm, but like a, a horizon storm. I didn't want to be in one. But I think there must be something really <laughs> special about like seeing the power of nature and weather and all that kind of stuff in the distance, but knowing you're kind of safe away from it. But we had 39 days of great weather. We had rain, I think, twice. One of those times was when we were about three hours away from Antigua. <laughs> and the rest of the time was just sunny and lovely. It was well, it was great on one hand. I get why there is part of you that wants that gnarly stuff, but I think it's better not to have it. <laughs> I think I'm in Matt and Johnny's camp on that one. And, and it's, it's sort of, yeah, I suppose at the time, nobody wants to put on their wet weather gear and clamber out at three o'clock in the morning into just horrific weather but it does create some incredible memories i mean there was times on the indian where i was just at my lowest possible but the memories that we've got of the sort of incredible storms were amazing and there was a point in the pacific crossing actually and it was about three o'clock in the morning and we'd been in a storm and we ended up at one point everything just sort of calmed down and i don't know if we're in the eye of the storm or, or whatever it was but it cleared up above us so above us was all the shooting stars and the milky way and that and then all around us in 360 we had sort of lightning going off but also when you were pulling on the oar you had the bioluminescence, so the, the plankton that, that flashes and glows swirling away from us. So sort of everywhere you looked was flashing and stars and lightning and this glowing plankton. And it was, you know, it, it was an intense experience to get to that stage, but an incredible thing to see. So yeah, I, I definitely understand that they want a, a little bit of excitement, but there is quite a lot of time left on this row and weather can change at the drop of a hat. So uh, I'm not saying fingers crossed they have a hurricane, but at the same time, hopefully they uh, get what they want out of it. Absolutely. And we've, of course, we've got Simon Rowell, a weather router who is on the case with the weather, looking at all the systems coming in, looking at the uh, tropical blob, as he likes to describe it. And so we will know with enough warning if there is any bad weather and we can prepare for that. Yes. And Simon's just incredible. I've worked with lots of different weather routers in the past, but Simon is on another level. He's just a brilliant, brilliant weather router. Um, definitely someone that I'm really, really stoked to have in our camp, I have to say. And he's funny. 
He is. <laughs> that's my main reason. He might be terrible at weather, but he's funny, so that's all I need to know. <laughs> that's why we love him so much. And actually, when you're on the boat and you you kind of log in every morning to get that report from Simon, he emails a report over. It's a real highlight uh, of your day when you read that report because he, he does throw a little bit of funny in there. It's a real event when you kind of read his email every morning. So, What's the difference between rowing on the ocean and rowing on a river? Obviously, it's a lot saltier, the water, but is it a different technique? Is it harder? It is completely different. So when I first got into ocean rowing, I'd never rowed a boat, never been to sea before. You know, I've been on a ferry, but hadn't rowed anywhere. And I decided I was going to do this. I thought I probably need to learn how to row. So I went to the rowing club on the river near me and thinking that it was going to be helpful. And the only thing it was really helpful for was the technique of, of rowing, of actually, you know, pulling on the oars. But even that doesn't really help you um, on an ocean rowing boat because on a river, it's obviously very flat. It's all about balance on river rowing. You know, most river rowing boats, if you stop rowing, it falls over. When you're on an ocean, you know, one side might be 10 feet higher than the other side because of the waves. So you're just trying to get the oars in and make the best of it. And there's nothing to do with balance. It will, it's self-writable boat. It's, there's, it's not going anywhere. It's just about getting those oars in and, and pulling. It's a fairly simple thing to do, ocean rowing, as far as the actual physical technique of rowing. But compared to river rowing, it's just completely different. It is easier than river rowing. It, it, it really is. It's just from a physical standpoint. But obviously, you're doing it for a lot longer and the mental mental side of things really kicks in. I've never rowed on a river, but I've seen people do it. And obviously, (laughs) (laughs) so, you know, I I know exactly what I'm talking about. But you see, you know. Totally qualified then. (laughs) The oars are pretty much guaranteed when you're on a river to go into the water at the same time. But when you're on an ocean rowing boat, you might have one oar in the water and one oar just swiping through the sky. So it's different in that respect. And we often get a lot of people asking why, when we're ocean rowing, that we don't feather our oars. Now, feathering your oars means you, when you see people rowing on a river, you put the oars into the water and then you twist them so that they kind of slice through the air and there's no air resistance kind of slowing you down. Barry, do you want to explain why we don't do that on an ocean rowing boat? Some people do very odd people, but 99% of normal humans don't do it because if you're twisting your oars all the time, it's, it's just putting unnecessary added stress onto your hands. And your hands look a bit of a state as it is with ocean rowing. So feathering them, it's just not something that's needed to be done. We're higher out of the water as well than on a river rowing boat. So there's just really isn't any need to do it when you're rowing for 30, 40, 50, 70, 90, 150, however long you're out there days, feathering it is kind of unnecessary. I think a, a friend of ours, George Simpson, uh, he wrote the Atlantic I'm pretty sure he told me that he feathered the oars because he liked the sound of it, which is a special kind of psychopath. (laughs) (laughs) That would be so annoying. Was he solo? No, George rode as a a four. So, uh, yeah. The oars also don't, they don't move smoothly within the oar gates. So I can imagine it would be like, like you say, with the noise, it would just be really annoying, that constant noise of them like clunking round. And it's actually quite an effort to turn them round all the time. So imagine you'd get like hideous RSI in like your forearms. And yeah, it's just not a thing that you need to do on an ocean rowing boat. I'm going to lump these next three questions into one because they're quite similar. So we've got, uh, what sea life are you expecting to see and is it migrating? If you see dolphins, can you jump in and swim with them? And will they be able to jump off the boat at any time to have a dip? I love the questions about sea life because uh, most of them, no, they're not most of them, but a lot of them are from kids and, and it's really it's really cool to be able to share that kind of stuff. 
you do see sea life. Often it's migrating. There's times where you'll go across a, a, a whale migrating line. So whales will be migrating from north to south or south to north. And you know that you're coming into a sort of a whale corridor uh, and you'll often see whales with the, the, the spout that they, they breathe out um, or sort of when they, when they breach, when they come out. The likelihood is that they will see whales. They haven't seen any just yet, I don't believe. They've seen lots of dolphins, um, huge, huge pods of dolphins, which is always brilliant to see. Mostly bottlenose dolphins and Atlantic spotted dolphins, I think. They're likely to see lots of Dorado, which are sort of bright blue and yellow, almost luminous fish, huge, huge fish, which which jump out of the water. Probably the most common fish that they will see at some stage. They've, they've seen a few, but I think they'll start seeing more now that they're at the latitude that they are, is the flying fish. So there'll be hundreds of flying fish that fly away from the boat as you row through the through the daytime. But at nighttime, they tend to fly towards the boat. I don't know whether that's just because they don't see the boat or whether they're attracted to a light on the boat. But at nighttime, you'll tend to get flying fish smacking you in the face. But yeah, they'll see jellyfish. They've seen sea turtles. Uh, they've had a squid on board the boat. When we did the Indian Ocean, we saw a whole shoal of flying squid, which I didn't know it was a thing, but I literally watched a shoal of flying squid <laughs> flying towards us. Uh, apparently, they were only discovered as a real thing. They thought it was sort of seafarers' tales. It was only only confirmed as a real thing in 2005. But yeah, this this whole shoal of flying squid came towards us. Yeah, they'll see. There's, there's plenty to see out there. They might see sharks. There's been plenty of shark sightings that have gone on. This year's Atlantic race, there was lots of orcas, which is incredible. It's something I've not seen at sea in the wild before, and I think that will be amazing. So that's killer whales. And swordfish. Swordfish was a big thing this year. There was lots of swordfish out there and tuna. And the one other thing that nobody expects to see, but on my crossing, we saw every single day was birds. Every day we saw birds and we try to encourage them to land, but they're not keen on landing (laughs) because they spend most of their time at sea. But when we were about a week away from Antigua, we did have a couple that used to come and sit on the back of the boat at night. Scott, who I rode with, hated the birds. He was like, don't come near me. He didn't like the flapping. <laughs> like out of a Hitchcock movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He wasn't keen on the flapping. And then I hated the flying fish because they smell so bad. You can generally smell them before you see them. And at night, and you're like trying to find where this fish is. And I'm not keen on the way they they move. So we had our... <laughs> We each had our vices. But yeah, I think whales will be like the pinnacle for people to see. We saw some pilot whales as we headed out of Lanzarote and we saw some whales somewhere in the middle. I don't know, but we only just got a glimpse of them. They kind of, their backs came up out of the uh, water and we saw the spray. And then we waited and waited and waited, but we just didn't see them again. So it's amazing to think of just how much stuff is down there underneath you that you never see. You could have like loads of whales swimming right underneath your boat and you would never know they were there. You're right. When they come, I remember we were in the Indian somewhere and these whales came along and there was a a, you know, gigantic, far bigger than the boat whale, right within two meters of the boat, and you could not see it. it. It was underwater, and it was very, very close to the boat, and it was very close to the surface. But because you're low down and you're not looking, like if you look off a off like a cruise ship, you see more in. Because you're low to the water, the the reflection off the water, and you could not see this whale. And then we knew it was there because we'd seen it breathing further back, and it was coming towards us. But then suddenly it just lifted up out of the water, and and you see these just wonderful creatures this eye, this huge eye staring at you. And it's just the most wonderful connection with nature that 
I, I think is is even possible. It's, it's a beautiful thing. But yeah, you do not see anything unless it comes out of the water, with the exception of things that are bioluminescence, so anything that glows, uh, which is quite common with fish. Uh, and I know that the Dorado, their skin is very, very reflective. So sometimes at night, our torchlight on the, our sort of light on the boat would illuminate them. And it looked almost like glow-in-the-dark sharks were all around us sort of thing. That was that was quite cool. Yeah, you see the kind of colours flashing, don't you? It's like a neon kind of under the water. So if, if you see dolphins, can you jump in and swim with them? For me, this is a personal thing, but for me, I would I just feel that we probably should leave them alone. Yeah, it feels a bit wrong, doesn't it? It feels like you're yeah. invading their habitat. I sort of watch a lot of videos of, and, and, it's, it's, and some wonderful videos about people sort of uh, interacting in, in a positive manner with wildlife. But I just feel like that's their domain and it's incredible. You're so privileged to have these creatures come and see you because you haven't gone to SeaWorld, you haven't gone to the aquarium, you haven't even gone whale watching. They've decided we're going to come over and have a look at that big weird white whale that's got oars and they're coming to see you. And and that is just, for me, it's sort of just brilliant. And I, t- I totally get it. And there's, there's no real danger of, of jumping in the water with with dolphins and whales, really. But for me, I prefer to just leave them that's the time when you when you don't get in the water for me, but it's it's completely different for everybody, and it's definitely personal uh, personal preference. Uh, will they be able to jump off the boat anytime and have a dip? Yes. Definitely. In fact, it's compulsory. The boat, as it goes along, because it's a slow-moving vessel, um, and I don't think you find this on faster-moving vessels, but because it's such a slow-moving vessel, little bits of algae and little bits of matter and plankton will start touching the boat and fixing to the boat. And then you'll get things like um, gooseneck barnacles. Goose barnacles are definitely the most common thing to, to attach to the bottom of the boat. So a goose barnacle can't propel itself, and it just floats around in the ocean and it just moves based on currents and the, and the general conveyor belt of the ocean. And then when it touches something like a rock, which is why you see them all over rocks on, on, on the seaside, it goes, right, this is where I live now. And it sticks this glue to the rock. And this glue hasn't been able to be repeated in science. Uh, it's so, so powerful. But the same thing happens when it hits an ocean rowing boat because it's slow moving. It sort of touches it, clings onto it, and then feeds off any algae and things that are in it. Uh, and then once it's there, it sends out its little tentacles and feeds on any bits of stuff that are coming past it. But the problem is they build up and they get quite big as well. And it ruins the aquadynamics of the boat. So it's, it makes the boat slow down in the water. And it has a really quite a big effect. It, it slows it down by about half a knot. It's hard to quantify, but the general consensus is it's about half a knot, which doesn't sound like very much. But when you're only doing sort of two or three knots, it's potentially 25% of your speed. So it's important to then, after say two weeks, three weeks at sea, dive into the water. You know, you take, you put your goggles on, you take your ice scraper for your car or, or like a paint scraper. And then you need to hold your breath, swim under the boat and scrape the barnacles off. You know, it's 20 minutes out of your day, but it'll give you an extra half a knot for a few weeks. So it's it's completely worth it. Yeah. And we know that the guys have been out for a couple of weeks now, but they still haven't had a dip yet. They haven't been in. We know that a couple of them have said that they are waiting until they get halfway to have like a little halfway celebration. And I understand that. That's what we did when uh, we rode across the Atlantic. We didn't well, I think Billy and Scott got in previous to that, but I waited until we got halfway. It kind of felt like a little celebration. And actually, it's quite a big deal. And we have a, another question here, which is, if the guys decide to go for a swim, can they all go in at the same time in the middle of the Atlantic? Or does somebody have to stay on the boat just in case? And 
when we got in, we all decided to get in at the same time because it's, like I said, it's quite an ordeal. You have to stop rowing, store the oars. You know, you have to be in a position where you're prepared to kind of take an hour or so out. We did all jump in at the same time. I do believe, though, from memory, somebody was attached to the boat at all times holding on. But yeah, we did dive in and it was one of the more interesting moments because you dive in and your head comes up and you obviously the boat's behind you and you just look out and you just see the sea in front of you. And for a moment, you think, if that boat wasn't there, I'd just be bobbing around in this absolute nothingness. You just feel infinitesimally small in that moment. You just think, oh my God. And then you turn around and you see the boat and you think, oh my God, come back, come back, come back. You swim as quickly as you can. But we chose a day when we weren't making very much progress. It was really slow. I think we only ended up doing about 30 miles that day. It was so hot. There were no clouds and we all just thought, let's jump in. It would be a real shame if you didn't. When else would you get the opportunity to jump in the middle of the ocean and just play around? It was one of the best days for me, like looking back on it. You don't remember the endless rowing. You remember the fun times and stuff like the silly things you do, like jump in the boat. What did you do? How many times did you jump in when you did your rows? can't remember, to be honest, but on the Pacific, I think we did it maybe two or three times. Indian was a lot longer, but also it was incredibly rough. The Indian, it was just horror the entire time we were there. So it, it, it was too dangerous. I think we probably went in a couple of times on, on the Indian. Do you at any point make time to sit and enjoy the moment? If the sun is coming up or if there's a pod of dolphins coming through, or are you just head down, let's go, we've got a dash on our hands? I think, and everyone, again, this is for everybody's different. I think the majority of people, and certainly I'm from that that world, if you're going to row across an ocean, does anyone care if you came first, if you're in a race, for instance, I, I don't know if you say to someone, I rode across the Atlantic. Oh, did you come first? Nobody, I don't think anyone's ever said that. But they, what they do want to know is, you know, did you see a shark? Did you, you know, see a whale? Did you dive into the water? What wildlife did you see? And if you don't stop to enjoy those moments or those moments where you're on the oars in the middle of the night, you've got the Milky Way and like, just, it's just epic. You get the epic skies, shooting stars all around you, you've got the bioluminescence. If you're not, living in the moment and just sort of enjoying it. I'm not going to say that you're doing it wrong because everybody's different, but I I find it very difficult to understand that kind of mindset for me if you don't enjoy those moments. If you, you know, we, we were in a race in, in, in the Pacific and we came second in our race uh, by 13 hours, but we spent a lot more than 13 hours messing about in the water and playing, looking at the whales. And, and uh, it just really wasn't on our agenda to try and win the race at all costs. It really didn't make any difference to us. We were wanted to be competitive, but as if you're going to you know, pass up on the opportunity to dive into the ocean a thousand miles from any piece of land into 10,000 foot, 18,000 foot deep blue water. I mean, that is the sort of thing that changes, makes, affirms your life. So so yeah, and I, and I really think that the crew that are doing the Atlantic Dash, they're such a wonderful group of people. I'm so proud of them. I think that they are all of that same ilk. They are living this in, in the right way. They're taking, they're using it to, to do good things and they are sitting there and thinking about things in their life that they might want to change and they're thinking about what they want to do when they get back but also enjoying those moments there's lots of uh, horror when you're out there when you're wanging away on the oars at four o'clock in the morning in the pouring rain but uh, I think I think that those those moments of, of calm and, and internal reflection and and enjoyment and the visuals are that's what it's all about for me anyway yeah I think for me on our crossing there were three kind of significant moments where you would just take time out 
and enjoy it. One would be the sunset because there were some really beautiful sunsets and it's just nice to just take five minutes out and just look at the beautiful colours and just reflect on the sun going down on another day and all that kind of stuff. Second one was any kind of wildlife most often dolphins because that's probably what we saw most of but as soon as they come around it's like everybody stop and look at the dolphins because why wouldn't you you know and the third time was when you were rowing at night and we would occasionally turn off all of our lights and we would just kind of lie back and look at the stars look at the milky way especially on a clear night when there's no moon if you turn everything off and everything is pitch literally pitch black you can barely see your hand in front of your face you lay back and you you often see shooting stars and just things moving in the sky you have to take those moments because when else do you get a moment like that when it's totally dark and completely still and you have a sky that stretches from 180 degrees across the sky it, the sky is huge It's absolutely massive. It's not as star-filled as some skies I've seen. So up in the Himalayas, I think, to me, it seems like the stars are more dense, but it's just the vastness of the sky and how you can just see all around you. So there will be moments, I hope, that they take where they just kind of sit and relax. And I do remember on our crossing when we have a thing called a sip and stretch when you row for an hour and then you take like a five-minute break. So you would maybe stand up and take the pressure off your bum or have something to eat and make sure you're drinking something. I would be quite good in the end at getting Billy talking about something. So we would just sit and it'd be really still and we'd be chatting. And then I could like make a good 20 minutes go by. <laughs> and he'd be like, oh God, oh no, we've stopped for 20 minutes. I'm like, oh, have we? Oh dear. Like I didn't realize thinking I know what I'm doing. This is why it took you so long to cross. <laughs> <laughs> but it was moments like that that were really nice just to sit and enjoy. And I don't think any of us regret them. So yeah, I, I do think there's an element of we have to get there. Let's keep going. But also, you do have to just enjoy being there at the same time. So even if it means adding on an extra day, I think it's worth it. Yeah, it's also impossible to get bored of dolphins. It's impossible. absolutely impossible. So you, you cannot have dolphins coming along and then you're just going to, what are you going to do? Just carry on rowing and ignore them. That isn't, it's completely impossible. <laughs> exactly. If you get hit by really bad weather, do all four of you cancel the two hours on, two hours off for a bit and jump inside the cabin? And how is the configuration going to work for the four of you to fit inside the cabin? If you get hit by um, bad weather, it depends on the direction of the weather. If it is going in the right direction, you crack on because it's not supposed to be happy and pleasant. It's supposed to be a challenge. But it, you know, the you know, rain, wind, all that sort of stuff is not is not something to generally speaking. You know, if it's a hurricane, obviously that's that's slightly different. But generally speaking, if it's really bad weather going in the right direction, you take advantage of that and you row with it and you let it take you. But if it's going in the wrong direction, really anything after about thirty knots on the nose, you can't row into that so it's pointless expending energy two hours on two hours off just rowing into something that is impossible to row into so you deploy something called a parrot anchor which is essentially a small parachute which you unfurl and put underwater and it's tied to the boat by a long line so if, if you didn't have it out the wrong direction weather would send you very very quickly back the other way i mean you could do 50 miles the wrong direction but you put the parachute out underwater and it basically gathers all this water and stops you and makes you this anchor in the water. It doesn't stop you completely, but rather than 50 miles back, you might only go two, three, four, five miles back. So yeah, you, you put that out and then you just get in the cabins and you seal the hatches. 
as far as how, how it all works, just however you can make it work. So maybe two in each cabin. Often people find it the four cabins longer but the rear cabin is wider. So sometimes it's better to have three people in the rear cabin and one person in the fore cabin just because it's wider in, in, in the rear cabin. But yeah, just get in the cabin, seal it up and, and uh, hope for the best, basically. It's pretty horrible being on Parrot Anchor. You'd definitely rather be rowing because you don't want to be all cramped up in that cabin. But there is that ability for everyone to be able to get inside somehow if the weather does get that bad or if there's a problem or something like that. Do you ever just drop Anchor and sleep? Do you have books to read on board or is there no room for them? And do you listen to music? Nobody has time to read books at sea, Alex. <laughs> I did. I know you did. Because <laughs> <laughs> you were supposed to be rowing. <laughs> uh, well, you can't drop anchor because we don't have an 18,000 foot long line. Power anchor we've got, but we only use it in bad weather. So yeah, no, you, you just do your two hours on, two hours off. Books to read. I have quite literally never heard of anyone that's read a book at, on an ocean rowing boat other than Alex Mason. So <laughs> <laughs> this is your area of expertise, so crack on. <laughs> well, I didn't, I didn't take any physical books with me. They were all on my phone. So like the Kindle app on my phone. And it certainly wasn't at the beginning because I couldn't even look at a screen at the beginning. So I was too busy throwing up. But towards the end, in the last kind of, I don't know, week or so, I would read about 20 minutes or so and then go to sleep for half an hour. It would help get me off to sleep, actually. So um, yeah, I did I did read a bit, but I didn't take any physical books. I don't think there is a lot of room for... St- I mean, you can definitely take one, but also I don't like the thought of reading like a wet book or something or wet hands on a book it makes me feel a bit weird, so I don't like that. But also you have your phones loaded with audiobooks. I listen to lots of audiobooks, uh, especially at night. So rowing at night is really really quite arduous and because it's dark you just want to fall asleep so sometimes the books would send me to sleep and I'd have to switch to music to just get me keep me awake and get me through uh, something with a beat so you could kind of row to it and then other times I'd be really engrossed in an audiobook or maybe a podcast so we're, we're really lucky nowadays with the amount of technology we have and the amount of stuff we can load on our phones to listen to and there were a couple of times on our Atlantic crossing where we thought that the current was taking us and our oars going in the water was kind of slowing us down. So although we didn't drop anchor, we did stop rowing and slept for a few hours and just let the current take us. And I think on that day, we did our biggest day. (laughs) So uh, there is something to be said for just letting the current take you across. I think we did that twice on the whole row where we were like, you know what, we're not helping this situation by rowing. So let's all just catch up on some sleep. Um, And it came at a really good time and we all felt a lot better after that, a lot more refreshed. So actually, there is something to be said in just catching up a little bit on sleep if you can, because I think it does help you going forwards. But again, up to the individual and each crossing is different. So what do you, what did you listen to? Yeah, audiobooks. Um, someone told me to listen to Harry Potter audiobooks because they're amazing. Uh, it turns out they were wrong. Oh, Couldn't come enjoy on. those. I, they're, they're great. Oh, God. No. Awful. I, I, I tried desperately to because everyone's like they're so good and it's read by Stephen Fry and I like Stephen Fry but, oh god it's just like the worst witch books but written by a different person I mean they're just it's just they're for children I don't understand it anyway I don't trust anything you say anymore uh, <laughs> I made a mistake so I was listening so I wanted to take some podcasts on the last Ocean Road that I did I wanted to take some podcasts because you know I really enjoyed like at the time I was listening to I think Serial the sort of crime true crime podcast and 
loved it so good and i was like i'm gonna take loads of true crime podcasts and i took a load but then you end up listening to every single one and you listen to them really intensely because you are in the moment you're not sort of driving or doing anything else you're just listening to them oh it was hard i felt like i was probably going to murder people when i got to mauritius on that one i was like (laughs) i know how to do it i know when to do it i know the best people to get involved it was really some of the some of the podcasts i was listening to were just incredibly dark and i was getting off the oars (laughs) just absolutely bereft feeling so so sad for these (laughs) these awful things that happened in the world so i i made a bit of a mistake with that one i tried to sort of pick myself up by listening to to music i ended up listening to really random music that i don't listen to in real life. So I listened to, I think it was stuff that just pumped you up. Maybe it was, no, it wasn't. Well, I, I remember I listened to the entirety of Dizzy Rascal's back catalogue. I didn't really listen to Dizzy Rascal, but it's just like that fast paced music and it was like getting me through storms and that was okay. But I listened to things like Pink. I, I don't know what album it was. I was like, well, this is on there. Let's listen to that. I was like, <laughs> I really like this, but it's not something I've ever listened to before or since. I think the big thing that I listened to over and over and over again, it just gave me a connection to back home was on both my Ocean Rose, Emma, my partner has has made me a playlist, like a you know, like a mixtape sort of thing. And yeah, I listened to those over and over and over again. And it wasn't really because I loved the music. There was just random stuff on there, like Land of Hope and Glory. And uh, and then to, and then next song was Emma singing. And then some uh, and she she cannot sing. So it's it was pretty, pretty uh but it but yeah, that that sort of connection with home for me made a made a huge difference in it. And, and those sort of songs that have been sent over are sort of become quite Quite, in, quite special and important to you. I do agree with you that, like my music taste at home, normally a lot of people describe it as like easy driving music. It's quite like <laughs> just gentle, easy to listen to. I like, I do like songs that you can understand the words, so you can kind of sing along. But when I was on the boat, I was listening to like club classics and stuff like that, yeah. and just stuff I would never normally listen to. But sometimes you really need that kind of just loud in your ears, pumpy music just to get you through the night. And we were able to listen to music communally through the day, so we have speakers. On on board and the guys have speakers on board as well and a bluetooth stereo so you can um bluetooth connect your phone to the stereo and play music through that and we would listen to music through the day and normally that was really good like 99% of the time obviously sometimes you're going to have different tastes in music and sometimes you're not going to be in the mood for something that maybe someone else wants to listen to so I think we had two arguments on board and they were both about the choice of music (laughs) Barry and I were on the phone for two hours recording this and we didn't think you would want to listen to us for that long so we've split this episode into two parts join us for the next one FAQ part two and don't forget to check out our social channels for more updates Links can be found in the show notes.